So then while the panelists are taking their seats, the next section will be a case-based discussion, interactive cases around antiretroviral therapy that will be led by my colleague, Michael Seig. Okay. So um, thanks for using this uh, technology. I think it's working well. Um, the questions are coming in, and uh, so t now we have our panel. You've already met uh, Dr. Gandhi. We have at the far end, Dr. Lennox, who you, you've already met. Um, thank you. And then a lot of you in the room uh, for years have known uh, Dr. Melanie Thompson, uh, who is uh, here in Atlanta and will be participating in the panel talking about the early days, but she's uh, uh, one of the pioneers here in Atlanta. And then Grant Ellsworth, who's going to be speaking to us later, is at um, while Cornell Medical Center in New York, uh, ID doc, MedPeds trained, and uh, will be uh, participating as well. So let's go into the cases. Uh, these are the disclosures. <coughs> and we're gonna talk about starting therapy, uh, art-associated weight gain, come back to the pregnancy topic that uh, Raj reviewed. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about virologic blips and uh, sort of set ourselves up for uh, Grant's talk a little bit later talking about anal carcinoma. So what should I use as initial therapy? So we've got a 48-year-old guy who's asymptomatic, viral load is modestly elevated, CD4 count's pretty advanced, 65. Uh, you get a wild-type genotype back. This is um, uh, someone who was evaluated before they come to see you. Uh, normal renal function is okay to start therapy. Um, which would you choose? And you may have to scroll if you're at home uh, up and down a little bit to see the options. Let's go ahead and vote. Sitting here all alone on a throne in a palace that I happen to own. Bring me some pheasant, keep it on the bone. Fill my goblet up to the brim. All right, let's see what we got. Grant, you're from New York. Can you hear that very well? Yes. It was. It's from sex. Yeah. We were talking about last night, yeah. Okay. So I got some help on Broadway up here. <laughs> um, so three quarters or so went with uh, a fixed dose combination of Bictegravir. Other folks went with Dalutegravir. A few folks went with Dalutegravir 3TC in this setting. Panel, what would you say? There's not a single right answer. Uh, there's lots of good choices. Um, Jeff, I'll start with you on the far end there. You know, I, I think my opinion similar to what the audience answered. Both of these top two are excellent choices. They're in these um, DHHS guidelines panel recommendation for first-line treatment. And, you know, the other options, um, the Q8 weeks, uh, cabotegravirapivirine for treatment-naive untreated patients is not currently FDA-approved. There's clinical trials data that would indicate it might work, but uh, you may not be able to access the medication depending on the patient's route of access to it. Dr. Thompson? Well, like Jeff, I think there are a lot of good answers here, a few that I wouldn't do. Um, <clears throat> cabotegravirapivirine, I think that's a problem. I'm, I'm not that brave yet. Um, and I don't know if you can scroll a little bit down. Curious to see how many people would have used the Alvatebrevir Kobe formulation. 
Um, nonetheless, the, the formulations with Cobicistat um, really aren't recommended for initial therapy uh, in most situations uh, because of the boosting effect on other drugs and the toxicity. Um, you know, I tend to like to give single drug regimens if I can. So, you know, I, I might offer the Bictegravir STR. Um, and I'd be worried about Dolutegravir 3TC a little bit because the viral load's kind of high, not tremendously, but the CD4 is low. Maybe on that regard, the the reason why Dolutegravir 3TC ended up getting recommended is from the Gemini trials. Those were treatment-naive studies that showed that that was Dolutegravir 3TC was as good as three-drug therapy. But a really important point that that Thompson was alluding to is that that um, study had relatively few people with CD4 count less than 200, maybe only about 100 or 120 people in this thousand person study had a CD4 count less than 200. And num numerically, the people who got dolutegravir 3TC had a less good response than those who got free drug therapy in the CD4 count less than 200. It didn't turn out to be due to virologic failure, but I've been kind of hesitant to, to take that two drug regimen into the CD4 account less than 200 for that reason. So, yeah, I, I just reflected everything that they said. Um, I prefer single tablet regimens, particularly in someone who's, if I recall, wasn't on any other medications um, and would be nervous as well about. So, one of the things that comes up, this is a little bit unusual case because a lot of us are doing more rapid starts before the data are back. Mm -hmm. And it kind of falls back into would you start with? 3TC sort of 3TC dolutegravir <clears throat> immediately, or perhaps start with a three-drug regimen and simplify, which could work, right, uh, Raj? In terms of what you were saying, that yeah, a couple months later they're suppressed, and yeah. then you can simplify. Once they're suppressed, even if their CD4 count started below 200, at that point, once they're suppressed, I feel quite um, comfortable with going down to dolutegravir yeah. 3TC, and um, several big trials have, have shown that that works. So, so I think we, we learned over the years that um, that initial suppression, when you have virus in virtually every lymphatic tissue replicating at a high rate, you get that under control. In essence, you put the fire out. To keep the fire out, it takes a little bit less oomph in a way. We didn't have the drugs as powerful as the strand transfer integrase inhibitors. Now we do. And I think that a little bit of help to those with another drug is sufficient in a lot of cases, um, and we can move forward. So uh, Dr. Uh, Gandhi uh, gave us a glimpse at the future. I've been pushing him on COVID there. We'll, we'll get, push everybody on what we're going to do three years from now. So the same patient, all right, CD4 count in the 60s and viral load about 280. Um, what would you use for him in the future? Go ahead and vote. Assuming they all get approved and they're safe and all that. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. Okay, let's see what we got. All right, so most people are staying the course <laughs> they're comfortable with. That makes sense. Raj, I'll turn to you first since you covered the topic. You know, I think three or four years from now, I'll still probably be um, using the regimen that you're, that the majority of you like. Although it's interesting, a, a good number like other regimens, but I agree. I think 
for most people, you know, especially if they're on another medicine, a daily uh, pill is a single um, extra pill is, is not a big deal and, and people do well on it. Um, I think one area, if they can sort out this issue of, um, they can sort out the issue of this lymphopenia with this latrophere. I, I think the idea of an every six month regimen, you know, that is getting to the point that I can imagine a lot of people wanting that kind of regimen. And, and if the resistance issues turn out to be okay, um, I would certainly think that would be so. I don't know if that started on everyone, because again, if you're on a statin or you're antihypertensive, you may not want to, you know, get an injection um, to avoid a single pill. We'll have to see where things go with self-administration of these drugs. I mean, one of the hindrances, at least as of this moment, for cabotegravirbilpirvine is the um, fact that people have to get it in a health, health setting. I, I hear that they're working on, and maybe others will know, um, a way to deliver that uh, through a thigh injection, which might make it easier. I'm, I'm seeing some nods, so we'll hear more about that uh, in terms of self-administration. The only thing I'll say about really far out stuff is, um, because um, I think you'd like the really far <laughs> is um, the antibodies. Um, one thing you can do with an antibody is that you can engineer it so that it can last a really long time, or you can even put it in what's called a vector. Um, and so you didn't have Star Wars up there, but you had Back to the Future. Yeah. Um, you know, in the future, will we have an option where we could give a person a combination of antibodies? Because I do think it's going to take a combination of antibodies that are engineered so that they last, you know, a year or, or even more. I don't know, but that would be great. Right. Well, that, that topic first came to my head back in around 93 when I first heard about uh, T20 because it was a peptide and the thought was, can you design a gene vector no. that you could put into people and let it just constitutively express this protein forever? And then people said, yeah, but what if you have a side effect? Or, hmm, yeah, I guess you have to have a suicide killer gene in there or something. Right, right. Grant, what, you know, what are you thinking? Yeah, uh, generally, I think, you know, th three years from now, we didn't get a lot of social history on this patient, for example. And if we get good results from the the viremic cabotegravir repilvering trials, um, I mean, that might be a good option. Um, if they're less than reliable at taking medications or they don't think they'll be reliable, um, but I would probably stick with the tried and true that everyone chose. Any other comments? Does anyone know oh. about the self-administration, the thigh? Do you, do you know much about, is that, do you think that'll be possible in the future? Or do you know anything about where they are with I, that? I don't know exactly where it is. Uh, you know, I think one of the advantages for that is that in transgender individuals who have implants in the buttock area, uh, they weren't allowed into the original Cabotegravir real pivoting trials, uh, and it's recommended not to give them injections because um, of the absorption and, and so on. So, you know, having a different place to inject would be very important to that population. Uh, but I, I'm not sure where that study is right now. Yeah. I think it's just a PK, and I would definitely not do it now until they figure it out. But right. um, we'll see if that's something that can be done. Yeah, so I think Mike, the... I'm going to defend the Linacaprovir group. <laughs> Because if you look at the rapid starts, it's better, but it's still 20 to 25% of people that aren't suppressed. And adherence is difficult when you've got a brand new diagnosis of HIV. And this person's 48, but most of our new diagnoses are in young people, which also makes it difficult to adhere. So I could see a future where if you had a Q6 month injection, you would give people their first injection and then help them with the second injection or at that point if they're 
comfortable with their diagnosis and ready to transition to oral, put them on oral at that point. So that's what I'm sort of hoping we'll get to in three to four years for new starts. And, and the reason to cover this at this conference is that uh, we want to be prepared for the future, thinking about things and just uh, kind of staying a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of our our day-to-day -day thoughts. And this obviously translates back into PrEP as well, and we'll talk about that later today, but just kind of fun to think about this as drug discovery continues uh, as we move forward. So BLIPS, uh, this is kind of the same guy who started on what three quarters of the audience voted for. Um, he remained undetectable until he was seen about four months ago, had a 91, and then said, ah, we'll just check it again in two months. So it jumped to 185, said, ah, you know, let's check it again. It went up to 220. So he claims full adherence, and he, for two years he's done really well. Which of the following is the most likely cause of his virologic, or the virologic failure from the <laughs> regimen? Um, so go ahead and uh, vote. Yeah, that's a bit of an obscure musical. This is from Something Rotten. It's William Shakespeare singing. Yeah. All right, let's see what we got here. Okay, 1% went for the Russian bot. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> they were the Russian bot. <laughs> I, I will say that in the pretest uh, that you all took, 77% of people got this correct. So uh, partly maybe because they've seen this personally or because I've used this question before and people may have seen it before. So um, thoughts of what might be going on with a multivitamin, especially if it say, has calcium or magnesium in it. Um, anybody want to talk about biology of integrase inhibitors and divalent cations? Yeah, so you just said it. There we go. There it is. Um, <laughs> they, uh, the, these divalent cations um, interfere with uh, uh, binding to the site. They, uh, one, one of the things that is important, I think, about this is that when we talk about um, reconciling patients' medicines, we often don't ask about what they're taking that's not a prescribed medication. And it's really important to ask people about everything they're taking. Um, and so I have cured a good bit of low-level viremia by asking people to take their medications at a different time or to stop taking. Uh, be careful when you ask people to bring in their supplements. They may come in with a shopping bag full of stuff. And that's I, I'm tempted to say, yeah, just don't take those. Well, pick out one or two you can take, but the timing is important. Um, and it's very gratifying to get rid of those blips when you're able to by doing something simple. Iron supplements is the other one that, you know, mm -hmm. we often miss in these. You, you know, lad, unlike with some antibiotics, um, the integrase inhibitors are okay to take with milk and other dietary calcium. That that's not a big deal. It's really these supplements, the divalent cations, but but unlike with a couple of antibiotics, if they want to drink their milk with their integrase inhibitor, that's okay. 
And you know, with the number of people we have who have osteopenia, osteoporosis, yeah, um, you know, and we're encouraging them to take calcium. And right. so it's important when we start those supplements to really, yeah. you know, sort it out and tell them when to take their calcium. And it's a lot easier now that we have once daily integrase inhibitors, right? right because right. of the hours that you need to separate the doses by. It used to be difficult when we used to have only BID integrase inhibitors. So in the 30 years of this conference and some other things, the the concept of cases from the clinic is we've been using a lot. And uh, in my years of doing this, I'll just pull back the curtain a little bit. I've, I've discovered that using a real case is is difficult. You got to stylize it, otherwise it gets into too much detail. So kind of isolate out the question that you're trying to address and then put bare bones of the background in enough to get to an answer, but no more because people can bog down. This is actually a real case. Uh, the timing is exactly what happened. And I will tell you, just my gestalt of you know, X number of years of doing this, I would be stunned if he missed a dose. This was just that guy. And you all have taken care of folks like this, although the data show you can't predict adherence by discussion. This was, I was pretty sure. So it turned out to be the multivitamin. He stopped it and, and his viral load came back under control. A couple things, yes, could it be intermittent adherence? Of course, uh, and that's probably the most common cause overall. The development of de novo resistance really doesn't happen unless there's true virologic failure because you need replication of the virus in the setting of selective drug pressure to develop resistance, to select for resistance. So, and so if the virus is being suppressed, even if there's some low-grade viremia that we're going to get to in another case in a minute, um, you're not going to see that happening unless there's just wild in adherence that you're missing and they come back in. And of course, recreational drug use can lead to inter intermittent adherence. Um, so there was a question already on the, on the pad here coming in from the audience about weight gain with that initial case. So let's talk about, um, this is a different uh, stem. So it's a 48-year-old woman. Started on a Bictegravir-based regimen 12 months ago. Uh, that's all she's been on. The viral load originally was 28,000. It was wild type. CD4 count was reasonable, has been suppressed, and those CD4 count came up nicely, but unfortunately, so did her weight, um, going up pretty significantly in the course of a year. And I know a lot of us have seen this. It's not unique to Bictegravir. Uh, other protease inhibitors can do, uh, sorry, integrase inhibitors can do that. All the antiretrovirals can do it, but especially the integrase inhibitors. So the question now is management because here she is, and this is what we're dealing with. What do you do? Keep her on the current regimen, switch to another integrase inhibitor, or get her off of integrase inhibitors and go to, say, a non-nuke like Duravarine. Um, go ahead and make your choice. Say you got a problem, well that's no problem. It's super easy not to feel that way. Okay, let's see what we got and we'll turn it off. Yeah. Okay. Um so about a third would you know stay the course, would change wouldn't be prudent. Um Duravarine is coming up pretty high, almost the same number of people in some form or fashion. Um, going from a TAF to TDF. Um, who wants to sort of discuss this for us? Tom? 
It's like, what's my line? Do you remember that show? I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, it's, uh, it, you didn't give us a race for this woman, but certainly it appears that African-American women uh, tend to be at higher risk for this weight gain. The advance in the NAMSAL studies have shown us that um, dolutegravir and TAF uh, can produce substantial weight gain more in uh, women than in men. And, you know, it's, we're talking about um, a lot of weight gain for people over time, as this woman experienced. And um, so I, I think uh, we don't have a lot of data with dictegravir, but as Raj mentioned earlier, it's a close cousin of dolutegravir. So, you know, weight gain is, is um, likely and has been seen in some trials. So um, the problem is we don't have any data to show that changing the regimen is going to change the weight gain. And that's, you know, this is something that is, is a real problem. Does that mean you shouldn't change the regimen? Well, I think this is a, you know, shared decision-making as they say kind of thing, but I think people have to, people often want to get off their regimens when they learn that there might be an association. Um, and I think we do have to tell people that there really isn't any evidence that things are going to go back to normal if you switch to another regimen. Um, so I, I really try to work with people from the beginning to say, particularly people who are just getting on drugs, um, that, you know, you may be gaining a little bit of weight as we go. So it's really important for you to eat healthily and be more physically active and so on, and hopefully try to monitor their weight before they get to a, a 30 pound weight gain uh, and, and help them you know, stay in a, a healthier range. So. Yeah, I agree with you, Melanie. And you know, we've all struggled to try and convince people not to change their regimen because there's no data to go by. And sometimes people just want to change and see what happens. And I do think that there's nothing wrong with some of these other options, it's just whether it will be beneficial is still very questionable, but at least it's psychologically beneficial if people try and they it helps them to exercise more and watch their diet more. And then it, even if it isn't the change in the antiretrovirus. Well, that's it. If they think that yeah. it's changing right. the drug and they're exercising right. and so on. Then that's it's a win-win. Yeah. So there is an ACTG trial that's looking at switching to a deravarine-based regimen without with TDF instead of TAF, and we'll see what that shows. Um, we also, I think all of us through experience have learned, plus there's data, that once somebody gets, once any of us get above a certain age, say 40, 45, you can't really easily exercise the calories away. It's got to be diet primarily and then exercise to sort of supplement, as opposed to if you're 25, you can pretty much eat whatever you want. As long as you're exercising a lot, you can manage weight. Um, so we're all, all of us are struggling, but especially our patients. Um, Melanie, let me come back to you and say, let's say she walked in the door, she'd heard about this weight gain thing, and she questioned you about, do you really think I should start on an integrase inhibitor regimen? Should I start maybe with something else? That's one of the questions that came in from the audience. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, so many of our patients are, are knowledgeable about these regimens and they may have heard, you know, information about this. Um, I, I think it's a time to discuss the risks and the benefits. And I think there are a lot of benefits of, from starting on an NSTE-based regimen. And I would, um, 
I would certainly take that information into account. If the person is dead set against it, then I think we'll do something else. Um, but I, I would, would make it a risk-benefit discussion and let people know about all the potential benefits. And, you know, I will say this second regimen, the TDF-FTC deravarine, one of the good things is that that TDF actually is associated with a little bit of weight loss. So, um, and in these switch studies, we often see switching from TDF to TAF, you get, you may get more weight gain than just starting TAF de novo. And that's because of reversing the TDF effect of weight loss. So, um, so I think that is one thing that this regimen has going for it. And also it doesn't have dolutegravir, which is likely to continually um, right, and it could be TDF three TC deravarine, which would probably be more right. prevalent. Yeah, right, three yeah. fixed dose. Uh, so, um, so one of the things I just want to make a comment about, and that is that the guidelines that a lot of us have participated in over the years is the fact they are just that they're guidance. They're not directives. They're not they're not sort of strict things that you're that you need to follow explicitly. So there are other regimens, and so this deravarine. TDF3TC might be a good choice for her with her viral load and baseline CD4 being where it is. It should work. Um, it's a non-nuke based regimen, and maybe that might avoid and have avoided the weight loss in the first place. So that's something just to keep in mind. It just brings home the point that we need to manage the person in front of us and um, tailor what we do to what their needs are, and uh, that's that's why we're. Uh, in practice as opposed to just uh, hooking people up to algorithms. Okay, uh, Dr. Gandhi sort of went into this. We're going to bring it home in terms of a case right here. Uh, what should I use as initial therapy? So this is a 30-year woman who's newly diagnosed um, because she was had a perinatal, uh, prenatal visit and her viral load was relatively low and CD4 count was 650. Um, her viral load, sorry, her wild type uh, genotype. And this is her first pregnancy and she agrees that it's a good idea to start therapy. So what would you choose for this um, lady? And uh, I think it's all self-explanatory. We'll scroll up and down. If you're on the, uh, on the uh, Slido, you can slide there, but uh, let's go ahead and vote. Tag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower how do we emerge victorious from the quagmire leave the battlefield waving betsy ross's flag higher yow turns out we have a secret weapon an immigrant you know when love who's unafraid to step in he's constantly confusing we're gonna let this run because this is the best part <laughs> I can't talk that fast. Okay, there we go. All right, so most people went with TDF3TC Dalyategravir. Hmm, okay. And uh, lots of other choices. I don't see any, well, there's a couple that might not be correct, um, but it just fell off the list. So Raj, I'll turn it back to you. So, you know, before December 20, 21, I um, would have also done TDF, um, TDF FTC or TDF 3TC Dalyatagavir. I um, have been reasonably convinced that, I'm sorry, did, did you say what? 
is she um, the trimester? Uh, she's six weeks. Six right? weeks. Six six trimester. Weeks. I've been reasonably convinced by this this, this um, uh, impact 2010 study, this um, vested study that that um, that half FTC dolutegravir is is a good option. So I would either do TDF um, FTC dolutegravir or TAF FTC dolutegravir. I think. Um, um, I've been reassured over the last couple of years that dolutegravir is okay to use uh, during pregnancy. In fact, it's preferred certainly once. There was never a concern about dolutegravir once a woman was pregnant, certainly once they were beyond the, um, you know, the early weeks of pregnancy when the neural tube tends to close. So dolutegravir has always been fine, uh, even um, um, during the early Sopamo days when there was concern around periconception. But now with more and more data, I think dolutegravir is fine. And then I think the TAF-FTC, um, now it's been put as a preferred, and I can see some utility of that in terms of some of those outcomes I was mentioning, the, the, the better pregnancy outcomes and the better infant growth. So I might go for that now. All right. So I wouldn't one, go for, the ones I wouldn't go for is I don't think dolutegravir 3TC we should quite use in pregnancy. There's just not enough information. Right. And probably, the guidelines is pretty, they, they steer us away from that. And then I would. Um, especially in later stages of pregnancy, it may lose yeah. some of its oomph. The, yeah. One of the incorrect answers, sorry, is anything with cobacystat yeah. because it uh, isn't really well tested and, and also uh, has some issues. But all the other options that you see listed here that the group went with outside of maybe the dolutegravir 3TC like we just talked about are reasonable. Um, I don't think we're using much abacavir anymore. She's a 30 year old lady and I don't think there's a big issue. What about somebody, let's flip this a little bit. Let's say this is a patient who's already in established care and has been on a Bictegravir regimen, and they come back at week eight and they they're they trying to get pregnant. They got pregnant. Uh, what do you do? Are you going to switch or stay the course? I would love to hear. In fact, in particular, Melanie's thought about this a lot, so I'd love to hear her thoughts. What I would say is it depends um, in part on. Um, you know what they're I would explain to them that there's not much data with Bictegravir in fact there's very limited data during pregnancy um, that a more standard or more kind of um, uh, a regimen for which we have um, good um, information that makes me comfortable would be dolutegravir rather than Bictegravir um, if but on the converse of that is if there's worries that she might um, have difficulty with the change she might have side effects you certainly don't want to lose virologic control um, certainly definitely not near the time of delivery. So that would be kind of the discussion I'd have. It's, I'd say, you know, a more um, typical uh, regimen would be not Bictegravir um, because we don't have much information. But ultimately, the most important thing is choosing something that you can take throughout your pregnancy and get a sense from her, you know, how worried she would be or what would be the issues around changing. And if she's very, very comfortable changing, then I would probably go ahead and change her. But then I would just have her come back quickly to make sure that everything's going well, right. that she didn't have a side effect. To the Other pregnancy. thoughts? So I totally agree with that. And um, the, the only thing I would add is that the way the, way the perinatal panel mm -hmm. dealt with it was to say, first of all, we don't have enough information to make that recommendation. But if people are staying on Bictegravir, then you should follow them with more frequent viral loads to see how they're doing. So, you know, and, and there is a significant risk of virologic failure after people change a regimen. And particularly in this case, you know, if you're changing to a drug regimen that would be two pills instead of one, then I think there's, there's some increased risk. Yeah, one of the questions that just came in from the audience was, can we talk about 
any differences between ropivirine and, and, and uh, duraverine, um, which uh, we don't have, I don't think, a lot of pregnancy data on duraverine yet. We have some. And I think duraverine, they, they said there's too limited data to, to recommend it. Right. Ropivirine has been on the alternative list for um, right. NNR test for a while, so I think if you really had a reason to use a... And I pulled uh, this yeah. from your talk. <laughs> so we can we can talk about it a little bit, yeah. um, but but in general, uh, they're obviously both non nukes and uh, duraverine has a, a bit more coverage against uh, resistance conferring mutations to the NNRTIs than ripivirine does. Ripivirine also has some uh, drug interactions with absorption if uh, acid uh, uh, blockers are there. But in general, look at the choices we have now compared to a couple of years ago and. So it's really kind of cool to see all this develop. And I think there is a sense that even though there's limited data for Bictegravir, um, it's structurally very similar to Dalutegravir. Uh, and my final point is just to reiterate this, going back to the basics. Um, the big problem initially observed with the, uh, not Raltegravir, it seemed to get through fine, but for Dalutegravir uh, was the neural tube issues at week six. And that seems to be abated with folate. So one thing to do is if somebody's on a Bictegravir regimen and they're saying they want to get pregnant, they say, okay, fine, you know, uh, as you go forward, uh, take some folate. And uh, that would help add additional protection. There's a couple studies that demonstrated that. So comp complex regimens, there's all kinds of patients like this one who's got referred to you diagnosed quite a while ago, but after this conference started, I might add, um, initially had a huge viral load and a CD4 count of 70. Now viral load suppressed, the CD4 counts come up, um, been on all kinds of regimens you see there, in some ways it maybe even doesn't matter at this point, but is on dalutegravir, boosted darunavir, TAF FTC, and you don't have any historical resistance tests. So this gets a little bit to one of the studies that Dr. Gandhi reviewed with us. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna change the regimen, not change the regimen. Uh, what are you gonna change it to if you do? Let's go ahead and vote. Right. I mean, no one seems to care or stops to notice that we're there. So we get lost in the in-between. But if you can somehow keep them Grant knows Dear Evan Hansen. That means we matter too. It means someone will see that you are there. All right, so let's see what Ben Platt would do. Okay. Um, a lot of folks, uh, some people would ch stay the same, about a, a little less than a third, but maybe changing to one of the... Um, strand transfer integrase inhibitors, or perhaps even just simplifying to boosted darunavir. Uh, Jeff, what do you think on this one? You know, this used to be a really easy question for me to answer until these recent studies, because I'm somewhat of a pessimist when I see somebody that's been on multiple regimens over 24 years, not like over one year. So they're likely to have experienced resistance. I mean, when you look back historically 24 years ago, and they probably have some nucleoside and non-nucleoside resistance. So 
I would have not changed the regimen until about six months ago. And in particular after Croy, I'm more inclined to change to a simpler regimen. Although I have to say, Raj, that if you look at the Nadia study, you could draw a conclusion that this proved the genetic barrier superiority of darunavir ritonavir but the conclusion I drew from it was they should have been given dolutegavir twice a day if they knew they had significant nucleoside resistance. So I personally would have chosen the choice of giving TAF FTC and twice daily dolutegavir, which is somewhat simpler than his current regimen. It doesn't have a lot less pills, but at least it eliminates a class of medication. Yeah, I think it does play back to what we were saying earlier, that once you have the virus under control, maintaining that, uh, you'd like to do that with uh, solid agents, but you may not need the sort of kitchen sink model we used to use. Um, uh, what about the value of a, a DNA resistance test? I have to say I have ordered it in this uh, situation in part um, to try to get a sense if it only works in one direction. If I see a whole bunch of resistance, then I, I'm convinced that it's there and I begin to think about it. If I don't see resistance, I'm, I'm not necessarily confident that it wasn't there in the past. So there was a study some years ago that looked at um, M184V as an example, where it was actually, again, the manufacturer of, the, of some of these drugs. They looked at people who they knew had M184V. They had a piece of paper from a genotype from 10 years ago that showed M184V. And then they did a proviral genotype these were all people suppressed. That's when you do the proviral genotype is when the viral load is undetectable because you're looking at the DNA. And only 50% of the people who they knew had a M184V had a positive M184V on the proviral genotype. So it's specific. I mean, if it's there, it's there, but it wasn't very sensitive. So that's how I think about the proviral genotype. I might do it. And if I saw a ton of resistance, then I, you know, would give me a little bit of pause. And one thing to be clear is I think these recent studies are uh, inching us towards an, a time that we're more confident about um, our regimens. Um, I don't think it's necessarily, I'm not wholesale yet taking anyone with a, a ton of resistance. I'm, I'm honestly digesting some of this information in terms of where I'm going to go with it. I have gone to the point that if they had historic 3TC resistance, um, I think Bictagavir FTC TAF, Dalgitagavir FTC TAF or TDF are, are okay. Um, and I've done that enough and I've seen the trials enough that I think that's fine. I think it's when you get a whole bunch of resistance or like in this case where you have no idea yeah. what the resistance is, you just can't get that. That's when it's, I've, I've done it on occasion, but then I've had this, these quite long conversations with people about come back in four weeks, I want you to get a viral load, make sure we haven't, you know. Uh, yeah, we, we, I think that's a key point. Yeah. We've definitely learned that any kind of either historical or archived yeah. 3TC or FTC resistance is probably not meaningful and you can sort of just plow through it with those especially with the strand transfer integrase inhibitors, um, and probably if you have susceptibility to boosted darunavir as well. Okay, we've all seen a patient like this, um, same guy basically, uh, except um, he comes back and he's not really undetectable. And the question here isn't to simplify. This is uh, a guy who's had a very high baseline RNA, almost a million copies when he first was diagnosed, 18 years ago in this case, and uh, never goes less than, certainly never goes less than 20 and rarely is less than 50 and kind of hovering in the 50 to 85, maybe going up as high as in the 90s, uh, currently on a 
Dayutegavir to Runavir with 3TC and no resistance tests are available. So would you keep him on what he's on? Would you change him? If, if you would do something in between, just hit not sure, let's go ahead and vote. All right, half the audience would just stick it out. And uh, some folks would change a regimen or maybe we could also ask the question, would you intensify the regimen? Might you add another agent? Uh, that might've been a better way to ask the question, but Grant, what would you do in this situation? Um, I, I think you could do, you have two options here. You could intensify and get more information or wait, get more information, wait for that information. Yeah. That would, keep most of the drugs on now I mean, you could maybe add back to or you know tenofovir um, yeah. taf ftc to that regimen and drop the three tc so let's say you you did that um, <clears throat> and nothing changed which is what the studies would suggest right so what do you think is, is the regimen failing is he, is he at risk of resistance he's not at risk of resistance at this level of iremia but it's kind of a strange regimen as well. You know, he's taking three separate pills there. You really would like to get him on something a little- Sim easier. Simplified a little yeah. bit. Right. Uh, Jeff, what do you think? Um, I agree with Grant's last point for sure that if you're having separate pills, maybe they're missing you know, one of the pills occasionally. But as you mentioned, Mike, the studies that have looked at this low level viremia have indicated that there's not emergence of resistance, at least over the term of a few years, which I think is pretty long in the life cycle right. of a virus. Right. And some of it was attributed to clonal proliferation of clones that have a resistant gene, a resistant mutation, um, that it's not really actively replicating anymore. Right, and I think that, that's the point I want to make, and I've, I've used this case before, so for those of you who heard this spiel before, I apologize, but I think it's so important that normally what happens before antiretroviral, these cells are the actively uh, newly infected cells, produce virus that come down and infect activated T cells. You have this vicious cycle that when you use antiretroviral therapy, you block that and it's usually 100%. So there you go and it usually in the normal cases drops down to less than 20 and everybody celebrates. But in people, especially who had higher initial viral loads, we know that the amount of virus in the bloodstream is directly proportional to the number of cells producing the virus at that moment in time. So back in the day when he was first diagnosed and a million copies per mil out there, he had, a, he, he had and still probably to some degree, has a large reservoir of cells that are producing virus. So you shut that down, they're not, they get killed off, they're not replaced. But this reservoir is larger in this patient than say someone who had a viral load of 20,000 at baseline. And these cells are the long lived ones that can live years. And, and if they divide, then they, you know, there's another cell with the viral genome in it. And they can be stimulated periodically just from a vaccine or from an illness or whatever. And they kick out virus that goes into the bloodstream and can be detected 
but does not result in de novo replication because the antiretroviral therapy is still working. And as long as that's the case, you don't get resistance. And adding another drug doesn't help. It's like the old adage in infectious diseases with antimicrobial therapy, you can only kill the bugs once. And so adding something more here doesn't, doesn't in most cases, doesn't help. Although the thought that the, the panel said is something we should work through. We shouldn't just dismiss it. We should be thinking, are there misdoses? Are there other things? But most often, the, the, the antiretroviral therapy is doing what it's supposed to do, protecting these uninfected cells from becoming infected. And these latently infected cells that make up what in this case is a pretty large reservoir are just spitting out virus periodically, and you just happen to see it and say, okay, and then you move on. And that's kind of the point of this discussion. And in, in some ways, folks who have very low CD4 counts to begin with um, yeah. probably ha end up having a bigger reservoir. So I think I would predict that we might, and this patient had that, predict that someone who starts with a really low nadir might you know, be more prone to this kind of thing. So. And that, that's, that's a great point. So we're going to finish with this case. This is pitched right to Grant because the setup for the talk he's going to give. <laughs> so we got a 35-year-old guy diagnosed 10 years ago, has been successfully treated, has a history of receptive anal intercourse. His anal pap smear is abnormal. He gets referred for high-resolution anoscopy, noted to have a high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, or HSIL. So what do you do? Do you watch? For another couple months, repeat the high-resolution anoscopy. Do you treat this lesion now, or you're not sure? Let's go ahead and vote. Insane. Cheat with the French. Now I'm fighting with France and with Spain. I'm so blue. I thought that we made an arrangement when you went away. You were mine to suffer. So in the movie version and on the case of the cast recording, that's Jonathan Goff playing King George. Jonathan Goff also was in Spring Awakening as Melchior Gabor, and that has a revival that if you get um, HBO Max, you can watch a, a replay of that, which is pretty cool, Spring Awakening, just throw that out there. Let's see what we got. So most people probably have heard about the anchor story. Yeah, I can go home. So yeah, you can go home now. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, Definitely, the, that's the correct answer. Now, um, what we've learned about anal cancer in people with HIV is the risk is probably a bit much higher than we thought in the past. Um, and like, he's very well controlled HIV. He has anal age still, as we've noted. Um, and we just have, don't have a good way of predicting who's going to progress to anal cancer or not. So generally, we recommend treating everybody. Um, and I'm not going to give away the essence of my talk and say how well that works, but um, it does work <laughs> to reduce his risk. Um, so we'll hear much more of the details around this. And I think the biggest problem that a lot of people are having, they get the data, they're just having trouble finding someone to refer to for high resolution endoscopy and treatment and quarter. Yeah, but we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay. so. The timing of this session worked out perfectly, just like I wanted, because we still have about 10 minutes for questions, and there are several. So I'm going to just circle back. Um, so is there an optimal timing for integrase inhibitor administration 
if you need to give a cation? Should 12, 12 hours apart in general? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that it's complicated. It's like two hours before, six hours after. I just tell people to take it at the opposite end of the day of their yep. cation. Yeah. And that usually works. Yeah. Um, to acknowledge a TAF in, in integrase inhibitors, uh, particularly in, in black and Latino populations with regard to weight gain. Um, Melanie, I think you alluded to this a bit in your answer earlier. Yeah, I, I think there are some differences uh, by race and ethnicity. And, you know, um, it's, it's important to recognize that those are not the only people who gain weight. So we shouldn't be saying, oh, it's really just you know, certain segments of the population who do gain weight with these drugs. But I think, you know, uh, the data would suggest that there is a higher likelihood among these populations. And it's important to, to talk with people about that and to give them some mitigating strategies. And okay. um, a question about going back to the original case um, about the potential of using upfront um, Let's say it's somebody who's got a viral load of 30,000, a CD4 count of 350, and uh, you're seeing them, they don't have hepatitis B, and you might want to move forward with cabotegravir ropivirine right away, and, and the recent data are showing that you don't necessarily need the oral lead-in. Uh, discuss maybe the pros and cons of using that up front and how you might decide. I think if you have the ability to use it without regard to, you know, FDA approvals and things like that, which we've done in the past, I mean, we've strayed very far from what the FDA approval is, that it could make a lot of sense for the reasons I mentioned earlier for the longer acting like Q6 months. Who, who and obviously the downside is that it's incredibly dangerous to give somebody a shot and say, go on your way, and then they come back in a year and a half because you're pretty much setting them down the pathway to guaranteed resistance to real pyrene and possibly to cabotegravir. So it gets down to patient selection right. in, in both directions, right? Who is going to have trouble taking pills by your judgment or your discussion versus making sure they're engaged in care? Roger, other thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree with Jeff. The, uh, maybe I, I didn't put this in the slides, but maybe I'll just make this point now because it's relatively new. The oral lead-in data um, just came out within the last six months or so, and I think the FDA just changed their, their label recently within the last, you know, this calendar year. But the, what they did is all the trials that got that uh, combination approved, they had about a four or five week lead-in with oral cabotegravir because there was this worry that if you give this shot, that if someone has a side effect um, to those drugs, then you've got the shot in someone. This is not the resistance issue that, that Jeff is talking about, which I completely agree with. It was more the tolerability. So what happened is in one of those phase three trials called FLARE, they gave people the option. This is now after they've been suppressed. Uh, you know, in FLARE, people were all biologically suppressed. So it's not this patient you're talking about. But they gave about 100 people, 100 people took the option of doing the oral lead-in and another 100 people did this direct to inject. Um, and what they found is that the rates of viral suppression were actually a tiny bit better with the direct to select, um, direct to inject, and there was no tolerability issues with avoiding that four or five week um, oral lead in. So that's why I think the FDA has given patients and their providers the option of if you've got someone suppressed um, and you want to go directly to um, cabotegravir, you don't have to do that oral lead in anymore. Uh, 
So it just it just reflected the fact of the safety of, of the drugs. Yeah. But the resistance issue is completely different. That's the issue of adherence, and you know that these drugs will leach out over a long period of time. And, and now, are you going to create a bunch of resistance? No. And and I think Mike, what you were saying is very relevant. That people want to be on these regimens because they have a hard time taking pills, or they don't take pill, or they don't want to take pills, and you know, I had a patient to, who said to me, you know, I, I'll be honest, I miss some of my pills sometimes. Yep. And, you know, I, I do much better on this regimen. And so, you know, I'm thinking, is this a guy that I want to put on 30 days of taking pills if he's telling me that he misses some of his pills, particularly with Rilpivirine, which is a little more fragile? Uh, am I setting him up for resistance just by changing into this regimen? And, and it this would be a guy I would probably go direct to inject. So one of the advantages of, of having this time is that some questions come in about topics that we didn't have in the cases. So here's one um, from uh, Cynthia Moorfield about, uh, talk about discontinuation of prophylaxis. So let's go back to our guy who had a viral load of, of several hundred thousand and a CD4 count of 65. You start him on therapy the CD4 count comes up into the 130, 140 range, and you've got them on PJP prophylaxis, um, are you going to stop it? At what point? Not at that point. Not quite yet. But he's going when, to right, So when would you stop it, I guess? Is I mean, if he came back, say, four weeks later, and he's 180 CD4 count, virally suppressed, I would feel pretty comfortable stopping at that point. Raj? No, I usually, so it's a good question. This is probably the most common, one of the more commonly asked questions. So I'm glad Cynthia raised it. What, um, you know, back, back in the day when we were doing, um, when we first got effective antiretroviral therapy and we had people on prophylaxis, we were like, can we ever stop it? And it turned out that yes, you can stop it. And the first thing that happened is once the CD4 counts went above 200, it became clear, and this was mostly observational data, mm. that you could stop um, trimethoprim sulfa and people did fine. But the question that still is a tricky one is if they don't get to above 200, because that's the, the threshold at which most of us initiate PCP prophylaxis, <coughs> if they don't get to it. And there, the, there's been a very, there's been a couple of small studies, including a very tiny randomized study. But the study that influenced the DHHS OI guidelines the most is a whole bunch of European cohorts. It's called the COHERE study. That's a, it's a conglomeration of European cohorts. And they took many, many, many people who had been virologically suppressed. And they had CD4 counts um, of different ranges, but some of them were between 100 to 200. And it wasn't randomized, but the people who stopped trimethoprim sulfa when they were between 100 to 200, if they'd been suppressed for a, a period of time, I think the average suppression was about six months or so, there were really no cases of nemesis that happened in, in those folks. So the DHHS some years ago, their OI guidelines um, now has a statement that, that says that. It basically says that if you're virologically suppressed, your CD4 counts below between 100 to 200, but you're suppressed for a while, that it's okay to stop trimethoprim sulfa. I usually, and they say, I think you can do it as early as six months after virologic suppression. I usually wait a bit longer. I usually, um, first of all, I have a lot of patients who've been on trimethoprim sulfa sometimes for years and they're suppressed. So after about a year or so, I definitely feel okay about stopping their trimethoprim sulfa if they're suppressed and their CD4 counts just stuck between 100 to 200. When they're below 100, they get, and this is rare in my um, experience, most of my patients who don't have complete CD4 reconstitution get stuck between 100 to 200 CD4s, but if they get stuck below 100 cells, 
then there's just less information. And I think um, the DHHS and I haven't quite taken that step or something, but that's rare. So the take home point is that there'll probably never be a study of this. Yeah. So we're left with what we got. Yeah. And in addition to the observational data that was just reviewed, let's just go back to biology. And I think what we've learned over the years is that you go back to the 1980s and there were associations of a CD4 count with a certain opportunistic infection. And ultimately, most people who weren't treating patients back then learned it in school, that if it's below 200, you're at a higher risk of pneumocystis. If you're below 50, you're at a higher risk of MAC. You're at a higher risk of crypto or, or uh, CMV. But I think what we've learned is that those are deeds associations, but they're, that's not causal. The, the CD4 count doesn't cause the problem, it's, it's the virus that seems to be the culprit. And the way we know that is because even when people's CD4 count is low, you take the virus away and you don't see a lot of those opportunistic infections at all. When's the last time you've had a successfully treated patient who then developed CMV? Doesn't happen. Or even if their CD4 count's 50, they don't develop CMV. They may have iris if they've already had it, MAC doesn't happen hardly anymore. And so what we've learned is that somehow that enormous amount of our replication in the setting of a lower CD4 count especially is what that virus is really what's causing the immune dysfunction. And you get the virus under control and what happens? Well, sometimes you get the opposite. You get iris, right? That tells you that the virus was suppressing the immune system. You take the virus away, the immune system goes crazy at about six to eight weeks afterwards. So it all begins to make sense. Then the question that is here in front of us is, okay, but how do you use that? And I think what you heard is right, that you gotta wait for the CD4 count to get above 100 as a rule, because the study observationally, even when they were suppressed or below 100, still a little bit more pneumocystis there. And, the, but, but if somebody is hovering in that 100 to 200 range and they've been suppressed for probably at least six months, some people go out to a year, you can safely stop their primary prophylaxis and probably their secondary prophylaxis as well. And for the other OIs, you just have to look at the guidelines. Folks there, we don't have time to go into all that. Um, so I'm glad they, they asked a question. Another question came up that for the last minute or so, um, we talked about this persistent viremia at a low level that we tolerate for, for folks. What about an elite controller? Now, the definition is that they have no detectable virus, but let's say they're hovering around 45, 60. Um, is that somebody you'd treat or you'd observe? If their CD4 counts 900, what would you all do with that person these days? Jeff, what do you think? Um, you know, that's obviously a special population and it takes a multi-center cohort to really gather them and study them. And I think that these elite controllers uh, that don't have detectable viremia for the most part do very well over decades of life without treatment. And, you know, some studies that have looked at people that are not quite that elite level, giving antiretrovirals, you can show declines in subtle measures of immune of inflammation yeah and so that might have clinical benefit over decades like 40 years yeah. and so that's the question for the individual patient if you have an elite controller who occasionally has some viral replication if you wanted to commit them to treatment you might want to do some testing to look at you know some inflammatory markers and if they do show inflammation talk about 
them about either going on antiretrovirals or maybe a statin. You know, I guess that's the other question. I think you're right. The elite controllers are shades of gray. And there are some who are genuinely elite. I mean, you have right. to almost do, you have to do HIV DNA yeah. to see that they're truly infected. Yeah. To believe it. But for someone like this, who's at 40, 50, 60, it's a little different than the person who's on therapy and they've got blips coming out of their reservoir. This is very likely due to ongoing de novo infection. Mm -hmm. And my vote would be to give a little bit of air support for the infantry because of the inflammation and because even among those who have had less than 20, uh, ultimately a lot of them creep up over time. And, and we talked about this notion of uh, functional cure. Uh, uh, Raj went over the bone marrow transplant cure. Well, that's interesting, but we're not gonna be able to employ that. But the notion of getting to people to where you give them some sort of therapy and you can pull away the antiretroviral therapy and they stay suppressed, that's a victory in terms of the numbers, but what, at what cost? And my thought is that to keep that viral load suppressed, the immune system's having to fight. And I think over time, that continual fight is maybe not so good. So a little bit of air support might be good, but other opinions are... Yeah, most affirmation there. Raj, I'll let you have the last I, word. The only thing I'll sometimes look at is if, um, um, so there's this idea of kind of elite progressors that these are people who over time chip away at their CD4 cells and they go down. One, one point that I've said before, but I, I just want to mention it is Joe Aaron at one of these conferences showed, uh, talked about a person who had elite control who just stopped coming to clinic and then 10 years later um, had a CD4 count less than 200 and died of pneumocystis. So that just dramatically made the point that even if they don't get treated, you do want them to come in and see you, you know, and yeah. check their CD4. But the, um, the two things I sometimes think about is if someone has a really altered CD4 to CD8 ratio, I feel like it's they're telling me that their immune system is kind of revved up trying to deal with their HIV. And, and so if I see a reversed CD4 to CD8 ratio, I, I sometimes think yeah. about that as well. Sometimes if their CRP or other inflammatory markers are up, and especially if they're blipping around a lot, you know, 50, 60, 70, I feel like they've got that replication. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, that CD4, CD8 ratio, we sort of totally ignore these days, but if it is in the lower quartile, uh, those folks tend to progress. Um, so conclusions, we should initiate therapy mostly with an NSTE-based regimen, unless otherwise indicated. We discussed a couple of examples there. Watch out for the divalent cations, especially when they're taken at the same time. The weight gain is seen with most any antiretroviral therapy, but seems more prominent in those who have received a strand transfer integrase inhibitor or uh, TAF-containing regimens versus TDF, and we talked about that. Um, Dalutegravir is becoming the drug of choice, but I like the idea of giving folate, especially in the first trimester and ideally before six weeks of gestation when the neural tubes close. Um, simplification of complex regimens is doable. I think Jeff, your description was spot on in terms of a couple years ago, nah, wouldn't do it now, maybe I will. And then we'll hear more about anal cancer. So thank you very much for your attention. Thanks panel for doing a great job. Okay.